Um, so we're going to get started just first. Let's review just a little bit. I just want to say a reminder real quick before we, before we get too deep um, that you can submit a question. If you've got them, just put it in the chat box there. And um, I've got the chat window up on my computer so I can see it and I'll respond to it. Um, so you can feel free to do that. And, uh, you know, it may take me a little bit to get to all of them, but if you have any questions, just feel free to type them in the chat box. And if I don't see it for whatever reason, Blake can open up his microphone and interrupt me. If you haven't muted your microphone, go ahead and do that. So we don't get any background noise or anything like that. Um, but, uh, we're just to, just by way of review for just a second, um, we going all the way back to second Samuel chapter seven, we're going to be in chapter 12 tonight, but going all the way back to chapter seven, God gives David a, a promise that he's going to make his house and his name great. And it's sort of this moment in the text where there's, there's a reminder of the covenant God made with Abraham. There is a, a real fullness of seem, seeming fulfillment of, of sorts to some of the, the promises that God has made as the children of Israel now in the land, they have a king appointed over them. And this king has a covenant now with God who is basically saying that he's going to make his name great and he's going to seat David and David's line on the throne in perpetuity. So um, that he, he's going to be on the throne forever. And, um, and so this is a, a, a really compelling promise. It's a great promise. It's a good reminder of what God is going to do through David's line on into the future. Um, and right after that, right out of the gate of, uh, of 2 Samuel 7 is 8, 9, and 10, where David uh, has this, you know, incredible military victories. Uh, no other way to, to say it, but that he walks into places and annihilates um, the competition, essentially. And this is really important as... God has established his kingdom or is establishing his kingdom on earth and has appointed for the time being David as the spearhead. As you think back, uh, if you're watching with us on Sunday mornings, as we go through um, the book of Psalms, uh, you, you'll probably remember Psalm 2. If you haven't listened to that sermon, I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to it, not because I think anything in particular of the sermon, but just um, because in that sermon, we cover a good, a good bit of this idea of God appointing a king over his kingdom and setting David on his holy hill in Zion. And what is primarily is first fulfilled in David will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. We know that's coming. But God, as you can think about the Old Testament story unfolding, God is essentially preparing his people for Jesus. And the only way for them to understand Jesus and, and his role is to prepare them for this king that's going to spearhead the kingdom of God. And so David is doing just that, and he's having these military victories. And the reason why that's important is because the kingdom of God is spreading across the, across the world, uh, really, at least the known world at the time, as David moves and expands the borders of Israel out. Um, to that the Ammonites conquering them, the Edomites, and so on and so forth on throughout the, the known world at the time. And so he's having these great, incredible victories. But then 
we, we get to um, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it opens in a really interesting way. It's sort of that odd turn of events right there in the text where something doesn't sound right, and it's right there at the beginning of chapter 11 where, where it says that in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servants, uh, with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites. But David remained at Jerusalem. And, and that's something that's actually going to change at the end of chapter 12. But right there in chapter 11, David remains at Jerusalem while all his men are out fighting. And that should strike us as weird. And, it, and we find out why he's there in Jerusalem and he's tempted. He looks at a, a, a woman bathing on a roof and he decides to take her for his, his wife or have an adulterous affair with her. And he ends up getting Bathsheba pregnant. And when he finds out she's pregnant, he puts together this elaborate scheme to bring her husband home who who is who is go, gone to war, brings Uriah the Hittite home and tries to cover his tracks. And obviously he can't do that. And so, um, oh, let me go through the slides here. He, he uh, brings him back home and he, um, he, he can't cover his tracks. Uriah doesn't want to play along. And so he sends Uriah back out to battle with a death warrant, basically, that he's carrying, though he doesn't know it, and arranges for him to be killed on the battlefield and with his general, Joab. And, um, and so Uriah is dead on the battlefield. And basically, chapter 11 closes with David taking um, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, to be his wife and um and coming to live with with david in spite of the fact that the blood of uriah is really on his hands and that's how chapter 11 ends and so we're beginning tonight with chapter 12 here is the king who has been appointed to spearhead the kingdom of god as it were and much like uh, adam before him and here we know that he has fallen and similar to how adam um you know, is found out in the garden. Uh, David is about to be found out by Nathan the prophet. And so naturally, this whole, uh, you know, affair that David has displeases the Lord. And so the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to come and speak to David. Now we know that the role of the prophet is one who is, there's lots of things that the prophet does. Uh, Obviously, one is to uh, declare what the Lord says. That's obviously one thing. Um, Occasionally or pretty frequently, that is a foretelling. So when he declares what the Lord says, that would, we tend to think of that as forth telling. He's telling what the Lord is saying. And then he, he often tells what's going to happen in the future, like a foretelling um, of events and um, this is how you judge a prophet, whether he is true or false. If what he says comes true, then he's true. If what he says come, does not come true, then he's a false prophet. And so he tells some things that are going to happen in the future. But often one thing that the, the prophets do is speak specifically to kings and leaders of state, which is obviously Nathan's role. He's coming in to David and he's going to tell him exactly what the Lord says and what's wrong with David's actions, but he does it in a, in an interesting way. And so he goes about telling this story uh, so that David can see the real atrocity 
that is is happening in this in the story and david immediately understands the the story itself and 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 decides rightly who should be condemned in the story and um and and so let's let's go ahead and read that there in second samuel chapter 12 1 to 6 it says and the lord sent nathan to david he came to him and said to him there were two men in a certain city the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he bought it up, he brought it up and grew it up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drank from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he, that is the rich man, was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the, for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall uh, restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David, it seems in the text, he doesn't understand whether this is a parable as the prophet Nathan intends it, or if this is a real story that Nathan is, is giving to him. But he decides pretty rightly that whoever, the, the greedy man, the rich man, whoever did this, if he was a real man, should be put to death. Uh, and should restore the the um, he, or he deserves to die, and he before he does, he should restore to the man fourfold what he has taken from him. And obviously, what he doesn't understand in this whole uh, connection between having pity and no pity is that this is reflective of him. He he's making a decision about this man in the parable that because he had no pity on this poor individual, uh, he should be put to death. But he doesn't understand that in his own life, though he, he could have shown pity to Uriah, he, he didn't. Uh, in real life, he didn't show pity to Uriah and Bathsheba. Uriah only having uh, the one wife, Bathsheba. David, of course, having uh, many wives, honestly, and um, and, and all the spoils and riches that come with being a king over so great an area. Well, remember going back in the previous chapters, David has conquered all these areas. And what did they do once he conquered them? They started paying tribute to David, meaning that all of these nations that he's conquering, it's not just as though he put down some sort of insurrection. No, no, no. These nations became va um, a vassal state to to David and to the kingdom of Israel. And so not only are they serving David, but they're also paying tribute to Israel. So Israel's coffers are growing. And as the king, he's naturally going to be a beneficiary of the coffers growing. And he looks at another man's wife, who is a man who makes his living by being a soldier, which is not, I'm sure, a bad income. But at the same time, he has a pittance compared to what David has, and yet he shows no pity for Uriah, even though he's willing to execute judgment on uh, on this man that he doesn't know. Now, 
you'll, you'll notice in the text at the very end in verse six, he says, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, the reason that he does this is because based on a, on a really strict legal reading of the Jewish law, there is a demand of a fourfold restitution that should be paid to the person that, that is the, on the receiving end, I guess, of the really bad offense that this man has done. And so um, we'll see that the normal restitution that you would pay if it was like an accident or something like that um, would be just a double restitution, but it, it, uh, it, it results in a, in a, in a fourfold restitution in a, in an event, uh, like this one. So we see in, um, in Exodus 22, one, before we go back and, and read what, what ends up happening, uh, in seven, uh, in seven to 15, let's look at Exodus 22, one. It says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen uh, for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So there's this idea of fourfold restitution. And um, ironically, the, the, the kind of this, not, not, I guess not irony, but what the author is actually going to do in the text is show that David himself is going to end up paying a fourfold restitution for what he has done, not by repaying Uriah the Hittite, obviously, because Uriah is dead, but he's actually going to lose four sons coming up. Um, that is not uh, anything less than than uh, a, an intentional display for the author to show you that David is going to pay for his sins. And um, we're going to see him in the text, not tonight, but over the course from now until First Kings chapter two, he's going to lose four sons in this in this whole deal. He's obviously going to lose the baby that we're going to see here in just a minute. Um, he's going to lose Amnon, which is going to be in the next chapter. He's going to lose Absalom eventually, which is going to be in a few chapter, a few chapters later. And then in First Kings, he's going to lose Adonijah. You remember Adonijah maybe uh, tries to take the throne from Solomon, and there's a skirmish, and and Adonijah ends up drawing the short end of the uh, stick there, and he he uh, he dies. And so David loses four sons as a result of his sins. But let's go back and read uh, 2 Samuel 12, 7 to 15 to see how this kind of shakes out. Nathan said to David, uh, as the King James says, thou art the man. Uh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if, if this were too little, I would add to you as, as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, 
I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord, uh, we'll pause there because I, I will come back to that, the end of that verse in just a few moments. Um, but you'll, you'll notice that, that um, what, what I think is, is really interesting and of note in this particular passage is as the Lord describes to David what he has done, who has David sinned against? Well, if I was, you know, kind of thinking about this story and, and, and looking at it without any biblical text, to my mind, I'm thinking, well, he sinned against Uriah. Uh, he put Uriah to death and stole his wife out from under him. And to be sure, he did sin against Uriah. Um, but the concern of Nathan the prophet, as he tells him this, is, uh, is actually not really about Uriah. Uh, David has sinned against the Lord. Um, you know, that's not to say he didn't sin against Uriah. He did. But the concern that Nathan is bringing before him as the king who is appointed over the kingdom of God to sort of spearhead the kingdom of God on earth, to be his image and to, um, to, to do his will and to teach his will to the people, um, David has sinned against the Lord. And you'll notice even in Psalm 51, which we'll read at the end, where David recounts what he's done, he, he even says, against you and you only have I sinned. Um, it, it's, I, think, I think mainly the thing we have to think about there is it, a couple of things. First of all, David is the head of the kingdom of God, and he, he's, he's um, uniquely responsible, as Moses was before him, of upholding the Lord in the eyes of the people. And David has failed to do that. And so he has sinned against the Lord and he, because he's brought down the name of the Lord in front of the people. He says, why have you despised, verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Um, so he, he's, you know, he's despised the word of the Lord. He's, he's uh, cast doubt in the mind of the people as to what the Lord's actually establishing through him. Um, so, you know, that, that's obviously one thing. He's, he's um, brought great disgrace to the kingdom. And this actually is a turning point in David's life and, and consequently the life of the nation. Because uh, you'll see from here on out, David's kingdom is not the same. Um, it's, he's constantly going to be in turmoil with his own family. Uh, his sons are going to begin uh, doing what is evil as well and killing each other. Um, there's an institute of, uh, in, uh, uh, instance of rape. There's uh, ton, tons of things are going to be happening within his own family. And this is a turning point in his life, in the life of the kingdom. It's just never the same. Uh, and, you know, up until this moment, everything has been really sailing for David. He has been protected by the Lord from the hand of Saul. He was not killed. Uh, he was blessed in that the people that stood against David were put to death and eventually died. It, it, obviously, it took some time, but, but eventually died. He, 
gained the, not only the throne, but actually united the tribes under his rule. That was no less than a miracle of the Lord to do. Uh, he was given, his family expanded. He was given victory in battle. And from this moment on, it just will not be the same as a consequence to his sin. And you'll notice that even the as far as the Lord is concerned, he says, because of, of uh, because you've utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. But Nathan tells him, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die, which clearly indicates that though your sin may be put away and your sin may be forgotten, there still may be consequences as a result of your actions that cannot be undone. And for David, uh, he's going to find out very shortly that, that some of these consequences cannot be undone. And yet he's still going to cast himself on the, on the mercy of God. Um, so the, this account of David's relationship with Bathsheba um, actually prepares us, the reader, as we're, we're looking at what's happening for the eventual accession of the throne of Solomon, that we start to gain understanding in this relationship with Bathsheba that Solomon is going to be the one to access the throne. Now, this is very unusual. Well, I say very unusual. It's pretty unusual because Solomon is not by any stretch the oldest of David's sons. And yet Solomon is going to be the one that's, that's going to be appointed to the throne. And so from, from this moment on, and I'll show you that in just a second, but from this moment on, um, death and sexual outrage are just constantly going to be a theme running through the rest of David's life as king. And he, as, as uh, Nathan tells him in uh, verse 10, the sword will never depart from your house. Um, so it, it's, um, it's a great tragedy, you know, for David's king, kingdom that there is a, a fall like this. But David is going to, you know, obviously be delivered. He's told that in, in verse, uh, I think it's 14, is it, or 13, um, that uh, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. David is delivered from the consequence, even though he deserves death. Um, he's told that he will not die, but punishment is going to be carried out, and it was carried out on David's son, the one um, that Bathsheba is pregnant with. And so for David, um, you know, the forgiveness of the Lord is miraculous on one end. It's gracious. It's, um, it, it's you know, the, the Lord is, is recognizing his repentance. And yet also it's, it's obviously costly because it's going to come at the expense of the, the life of his, of his son. And so we see in, in verse 15, Nathan, Nathan went out of his house and it says, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. So the Lord gives to this child a sickness and um, the child, it, it, it seems, is going to die. And it seems like there's nothing that David can really do about it. But it doesn't stop David from, from trying to do something about it. So David is thinking to himself, uh, and probably rightfully so, the, you know, maybe the Lord has, maybe that's not the last word 
that he's got. One thing that you can say about David is, well, a couple of things. One, when he's caught, he knows it and he owns up to it. But second, he never gives up on the Lord's grace and mercy. And, you know, it's, it's one thing for him to be um, some, someone who is, who, is, who is himself gripped by grace um, and, and understands the grace of the Lord, but it's another thing for him to latch on to grace. And that's one thing you can say about David, that no matter what, he is going to appeal to the Lord's mercy and the Lord's grace. We'll see in a few chapters where he does a, a kind of a foolish thing of counting his people. And uh, it becomes evident that he's done this out of pride and, and he's told again of his sin. And, and um, he's presented by the Lord with basically three options. Uh, or, or you know a, cu- a couple of options that he that he's that he's given of the punishment that he would he would take, and some a couple of those punishments are to be you know on the run from men or at the hands of men, and he basically turns it over to the Lord and he says I'm going to let the Lord decide, except don't let me be be in the hands of men, because the Lord is gracious and I know that, and even though He will punish me he will still be way more gracious and merciful than man is. And so he turns himself yet again over to the mercy of the Lord. So it's, it's evident that David, though he sins, he does understand the grace and mercy of the Lord. And he, he again casts himself on at the mercy of the Lord in hopes that the Lord will actually deliver him. And, uh, and, and maybe by some chance deliver his son. And so he pleads with the Lord that he would deliver his son. And I'm going to go ahead and read that. Um, it's in Second uh, Samuel uh, 7 and 13 to 17. Um, uh, no, no, no. Sorry, I messed that up. Uh, good grief. Where is it? I'm just going to read it out of the Bible then instead of my worksheet. Um, uh, 12, the second half of 15 on through, he says, and the, the Lord afflicted the child that, that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David, therefore, sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say, you know, the child is dead? He may do to himself some harm. But David, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You have fasted and wept while the child was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, 
who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring, can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So you can see even, even in, in the midst of such a, uh, really a, a very horrible prophecy, David still believes in the Lord's goodness and his graciousness. And not for a second does David feel sorry for himself. There's not this you know, moment where so often where I get where I feel sorry for myself and you know, the Lord's punishment is not fair. And that kind of thing, uh, David doesn't really question that, and he doesn't question the Lord's goodness. But he does know that the Lord is gracious and appeals to the Lord. Maybe the Lord will not carry out what he has said he would carry out. Um, But the Lord is gracious to David, and he does give him another son by Bathsheba. Um, And the Lord gave him Solomon. Uh, And the Lord actually gives to Solomon a second name, Jedidiah, which means favored of Yahweh. Or uh, anytime you see at the end of the names that word Yah, um, it it typically means Yahweh, the name of the Lord. Um, So you can pretty much guarantee they're Jewish or they have some sort of Jewish descent. Um, And if you see the name El or the word El at the end of a name, that typically just means God. It could mean Yahweh, God, or it could mean just little g, God. Uh, it's sort of impossible to tell. But, um, but that Yah at the end of Jedidiah uh, means favored of, of Yahweh. And so it, he, it basically indicates to us that uh, Solomon is designated as the heir. So um, when someone accessed the throne, uh, it wasn't uncommon for them to receive a throne name. So that's why you'll see these kings throughout the Bible and why it makes it incredibly difficult sometimes to track down which king was which, especially when it comes to Egypt. But even in Israel and Judah, this is the case. You know, a king takes the throne and they may have two, maybe even three names that they go by and they're referred to by one of those names throughout the text. And so it's not uncommon for someone to have a a sort of throne name, but Solomon's throne name comes from Yahweh himself, which is highly unusual. And so, uh, so he has this throne name and it's Jedidiah and it comes from Yahweh, which obviously means favored of Yahweh. So it designates him as the favored one of the family. So what that tells the reader as you're reading through second Samuel is that it's going to be Solomon who accesses the throne, who becomes the the favored King that sets us up really well because in first Kings, when there's a battle over the throne between Adonijah and and Solomon, you uh, you kind of understand I'm, I'm sort of rooting for Solomon or you understand why the writer is, is sort of leaning towards Solomon and telling more of the story of Solomon than anybody else. Um, because Solomon's going to be the one that, you know, that ends up accessing the throne since Yahweh did name him, uh, which, you know, always bodes well if Yahweh is the one that names you, um, just for future reference. So, um, now, 
what's interesting about this whole scene here, as we've been thinking about David as sort of the, the uh, spearhead, if you will, I've been using that term, you know, uh, of the kingdom of God. He's, he's the king that's been placed on the holy hill, so to speak. Um, he's been given this, you know, opportunity to spearhead. David's sin represents yet another sinful fall of the one, the one appointed to spearhead the kingdom of God. We, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 3. Here's Adam, who's appointed head over the human race. He's appointed to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it and have dominion over it and as, as the image bearer of God. And yet he fails spectacularly in spearheading the kingdom of God. And here is David who is appointed to have dominion over God's kingdom and over the earth and subdue it. And he's going out and conquering and subduing it. And yet here David sins again. And yet there's, there's another, you know, sinful fall of the kingdom of God. And what's really interesting is that following right after this, one of David's sons will rise up and kill another one of his sons, which Sounds awfully eerily similar to Genesis chapter 4, where one of Adam's sons rises up and kills another one of Adam's sons. Um, and what we, what we see is not only does David pay this fourfold restitution of four of his sons dying, but uh, it, it seems that all of his family is at war with one another. There's this great animosity that is created, um, and there, there's you know war with one another, and the sons will end up killing killing each other in many cases, and so um, it's it's a it's a tragedy. But not only that, in several of the instances where there's great sin in the in David's kingdom, there is this crafty or wise counsel that's given to the person who that that the counsel actually end up ends up leading to death and further destruction. Uh, not least of which is in the very next chapter where we'll see in 13 verse 3, uh, you'll, you'll notice this is very eerily similar to Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent comes into the garden. It says, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? He basically is going to go on to advise him to uh, rape his sister. And so that counsel that he receives is not godly counsel. And it comes from a crafty individual uh, or, or a so-called, quote unquote, wise individual. Um, the text, the, the Bible, I think, is using that. Um, in a really kind of a pejorative way or kind of a sort of a sarcastic way, as it were, because that wise counsel is going to be something that just like Adam listened to the counsel of the snake is going to actually lead to further death and destruction of David's sons. And Absalom, who is going to kill Amnon because of the rape of Tamar, uh, is going to end up trying to overthrow David, and David's going to end up, or he's get, Absalom is going to end up dying. And so 
it just leads to further destruction and further destruction as they listen to this counsel. There's several more instances where even David listens to counsel and, uh, and so on and so forth. So it, it, there's these strong parallels that call back to Genesis chapter three, where yet again, sin has entered into the kingdom of God. And there's this um, tremendous downturn in, in the kingdom. Um, we get to this last little section because I want to consider just for a moment, I want to look at David's repentance. And I want you to notice that there's two aspects to David's repentance that need to be considered. And on the one end is David's confession. And then on the other end is his assurance that's actually given to him. And both of them have an important place. So I just want to read 13 and 14 again in chapter 12. Uh, Let me go back to that real quick. Um, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. And and then he, he says, nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Uh, then Nathan went to his house. So there, there's first David's confession, and it's very brief. It's short. He, he simply just says, I've sinned, which is really two Hebrew words. Uh, I have sinned. And that's all, pretty much it. And then uh, Nathan gives him the assurance of absolution. He's, he's uh, the Lord has put it, put it away. But what I want you to note about David's confession, I think is, is really profound. Um, even though it's just two words, it represents the sign of a broken spirit. Now, why is that? I, I think because in David's confession, you'll notice there is no excuse. There is no uh, cloaking what he's done. There is no glossing over the sin. There's no searching for a loophole. There's no pretext put forward. No human weakness pleaded. He simply acknowledges his guilt openly and candidly without speaking about it evasively. David's, it's short. It's two words. But in those two words, he owns it. You're right. I have sinned. There is no him trying to say, well, yeah, but I did this. Yeah, but did you see what I did over here? Yeah, but have you seen all these battles that I've gone out and fought for the Lord? Have you seen what I've done for the Lord? I've served him faithfully. Have I not, have I not done all of this for the Lord? Have I not upheld his name in front of the people? Um, ha- did I attack Saul? I didn't. I didn't put out my hand to attack Saul. I didn't do any of that. Do I not deserve this or that or the other? He doesn't do any of that. He simply just owns his sin. I want you to look at two passages, two two verses, and I've included them, I hope, in um, the verse packet here. Uh, Yeah. Uh, First is Luke 18.3. He says, And there was a widow in that city. uh, Now, that is not the correct verse. I'm sorry. the, the verse I was trying to trying to cite, and obviously I copied it down wrong, is um, is the plebeian that basically pleads in the town square, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. You have the, the Jesus is telling the story where he contrasts 
the Pharisee in the, in the street corner that says, thank you, Lord, that you have not made me like this man. And he kind of builds himself up and puffs himself up in front of everyone. And then Jesus turns to the, the, the sinner, the plebeian in the, in the city and basically says, oh, 8.13, 8, not 18.3. Uh, uh, that's where I got it wrong. Um, but he says, um, he says, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. And that's it. There's, there's, there's nothing else. Oh, David Maxwell tells me 1813. Uh, so we both got it wrong, David. (laughs) Um, so, you know, Jesus's point is that in repentance, the first step is confession. You, there doesn't need to be this extensive, uh, you know, going on about all the things that you did or try to get out of it or wiggle out of it in some way or plead your case. Uh, If God's calling you to account, then you did it. Um, You'll also remember maybe in 1 John 1 where he tells us that uh, when uh, he calls on us to, to confess our sins and he says, if we say we have no sin, we make God out to be a liar. And you might ask yourself, well, how is it I'm making God out to be a liar if I don't think that I've sinned here? And the answer is very simple, because on the cross of Christ, God has identified all your sin. In order to punish Jesus for it, he had to call exactly what your sin was. All of your sin was in the future when Jesus died. And so he identified all of it as sin and punished Jesus for all of it. And so when you're in a a moment in that time where you're caught in sin and you're seeking to justify yourself, all you're simply doing is telling God the sin that you identified on the cross of Christ, you were lying. You were wrong. You weren't telling the truth. I didn't sin here. And so I think there's, there's a real simplicity, a real earnestness and, and honesty and something we can honestly emulate in David here in simply just confessing his sin. Um, I, I try to teach this to our kids. Obviously, we try to teach this to our kids that uh, when we, you know, one of them's hit somebody else or one of them said something mean about somebody else, um, even from a very young age, I've always asked them the question, or I've tried to always ask them the question, are you guilty? Uh, knowing that they are, I know they are, they know they are, I simply want them to admit Yes, I did that. That's it. Just admit to me you did it. Don't, yeah, but uh, I, she did this or he did that, uh, and that justifies my action. No, no, just own up to it and admit it. I did that. And you'd be amazed, even when you uh, ask for forgiveness interpersonally between other people, just simply acknowledging I did this and it was sinful and I'm sorry is a uh, a huge step forward, step in the right direction. And David uh, does that. He acknowledges that and doesn't seek to evade out of it. Um, and the fact that Yahweh doesn't kill him is wholly gratuitous. It is not, he, he didn't merit it. He didn't earn that. It's strictly out of the Lord's grace that he gave that to him. He he was not obligated to do that for David. The law calls for the death penalty. 
and he had every right to give David the death penalty right there. And he doesn't do it. He still does punish David, and he still does take the life of his son, but he, he, he doesn't punish David with the death penalty, even though he had every right uh, to do it. Holy, gratuitous, and death penalty. I'm going to go to the next thing. Um, I think it's helpful as we think about repentance to remember that um, repentance is first an intellectual understanding. We have to come to a place where we acknowledge that sin right there, I committed, and it is wrong. I understand that it's wrong. Second, there is an emotional approval of the teachings of Scripture regarding the sin. In other words, not only did I, do I understand that sin, I understand why it's sin, and I understand that I committed it, the intellectual part. But then there's working it into your heart now, where you're actually understanding the Scripture's teaching and understanding how grievous that sin is. This is something you cannot manufacture. Understand that. You cannot give that to your kids. Your kids cannot earn it. It is strictly a gift of the Holy Spirit that you would hate your sin. Please understand that. You cannot hate your sin unless the Holy Spirit gives you the hatred for your sin. Um, I was reminded of that in just the other day in Pilgrim's Progress. If you've not read the Pilgrim's Progress, you absolutely should. And there is a copy of the Pilgrim's Progress that I would recommend. Uh, it's published by Crossway, I believe, and it is illustrated. Um, I think I got it for $5 plus shipping. It was like seven or eight bucks through Alistair Begg's ministry. I cannot remember the name of his ministry. Grace for Life or Truth of Life? Truth for Life? Is that Truth it? for Life. What is it? Truth for Life. Truth for Life. There it is. Truth for Life. Uh, you can search Pilgrim's Progress on his website, and you'll see it there. It's like $5 plus shipping and handling. It's a steal. And um, it's, it, they've lightly touched the language to make it a little bit more readable. And it's illustrated throughout. It's a pretty quick read. It's really, really good. But in the process, there's uh, Christian and faithful as they walk down the road, talking to talkative. And they meet talkative on the way. Talkative sounds as though he is uh, a holy and righteous man. And faithful even thinks that he is righteous. And Christian warns him, uh, you need to pause on that and you need to question him a little bit more and you'll see that he's not. And so Christian or faithful begins to ask him questions. And he says, what is, you know, what does, how does one know that one is saved? And talkative comes to the answer. Well, he cries out against his sin. He speaks out against his sin and faithful says, no, that's not right. First, the Holy spirit gives him a hatred for his sin because you can talk about your sin and you can confess your sin all you want, but you cannot hate it 
unless the Holy Spirit does that in you. And that is a gift only given to his people, his children. And so, um, so there's the intellectual understanding. It is sin and it is wrong and I've done it. Then there's the emotional approval of the scripture's teaching regarding the sin and then sorrow and hatred that follows after that. And then a personal decision to turn from it and renounce the sin and decide to forsake it and lead a life of obedience to Christ instead. So that all the steps of repentance have to be there before it is repentance. Um, you have to be walking the other way. Repentance is not simply the confession. It is then also the, the, the turning and walking away from it um, and, and moving in the opposite direction. This is why I, I think it's very important when, that we understand when you, you fall into the trap of sin, it's one thing to acknowledge it and to have the, the heartfelt remorse over it and to confess it before the Lord and own it. I did this. But to make the move in the opposite direction and, and, and actually move toward repentance, you need to pick up whole new habits uh, of behavior. Notice David goes into extreme lament and remorse and uh, weeping over the consequences of his sin and pleading with the Lord um, as evidence that he is moving in a different direction from it. And so for, for people that fall into sin, the thing that I encourage them to do most, our sin is not a result of bad choices merely. It's a result of, of bad motivations, of bad satisfaction in our heart. The appetite of our heart is set on bad things. And so in order to move in the opposite direction, we have to teach our heart new habits and new behaviors that are edifying and uplifting. And so instead of consuming the kind of media that we're used to consuming, the kind of media we need to move toward consuming is media that edifies and lifts us up and builds us up and moves us in the right direction so that our appetite can grow in the things of God rather than in the things of the world. And, and if, we, we're, we're, if we don't do that, then all that ends up happening is that we come out of that moment of sobriety where we're thinking about our sin and where we're really sorry for it. And we fall right back into the same trap of sin because our heart is still satisfied by the bad things. And so to teach your heart to have new habits and, and better habits and attitudes, we have to feed that um, with the word of the Lord, with prayer, with, yes, fasting, with um, maybe it's edifying sermons. We have access to every sermon ever preached practically uh, in today's day and age. You know, you, you, you utilize those and continue to remind yourself of those. Scripture memory is a huge thing in that. Um, you know, all of these things continue to grow your appetite. So if you think of the flesh and the, sin, the sinful flesh and the spirit of God as two dogs at war within you, the way you get one dog to win is you feed it and you starve the other. And so it's resisting sin and temptation and feeding the dog of the spirit, so to speak, with the words of scripture. And, um, and I, I, all of those are necessary as we move into repentance. Um, so one of the things that I, I think is the most key that churches 
not just our church, but churches do in a worship service is actually pause to consider sin and just confess it. So you'll notice that's one thing we've been doing for some time now, and it probably felt really weird to you at first. It may still feel really weird to you to do that in a worship service because sadly, not a lot of churches do it. And yet it's fundamental to our life as Christians to acknowledge our sin and, and acknowledge that it's wrong, at least. We can't give you the hatred for it. I can't even put that in my own heart. That's a gift of the Spirit. But as I'm sitting there, it's incumbent on me to remember and to remind myself of the many ways in which I sin, to hear Scripture speak about it, maybe some sins that I don't consider uh, or haven't thought about that I've committed, to be brought to my attention and just have a moment where I confess those before the Lord. And then on the back end of that, hear that Christ died for that sin too. And you're forgiven. That needs to be a regular part of our worship services. Because if it's not, then I, I fear, and it hasn't been for some time, and I fear the American church in particular has been led into this kind of trance where we think that worship services need to be this uh or or are supposed to be this um you know euphoric experience instead of sobering experience so questions comments concerns fears hopes dreams pet peeves thoughts lamentations or woes that's the one way one time i know that sean i mean that kennedy is listening to the service is because when you get to that prayer he always sits up and leans over onto my chest so that we can go over the week and what we feel sorry about yeah yeah It's a, uh, it's a, it's an important thing. And, and, you know, honestly, like we teach our kids and, and you have to parent, parents, especially, I don't know if I've got parents on here, Blake, I guess, and you know, some parents with children still in the home, but um, all the mobs, I see them, um, you know, it's incumbent on us as parents to, even in those interactions with our, with our children between each other, where they one has sinned against the other to confess it, own up to it, ask for forgiveness, and to, to then reassure them that sin is a shameful thing, but you don't have to live in shame. You know, and, and that's, that's the thing. So, you know, for, for Kennedy too is, you know, to say this is yet again more evidence of why we need a Savior. Um, and that it gives you every opportunity to come right back to the gospel yet again. Don't live in shame. Once your sin is confessed and owned and, and you know, hated and turned from, you're forgiven. So know that Christ died for you and, and, and you don't have to live in shame anymore, which is, which is a great reassurance. And, you know, if, if I can do, I can't give my kids a hatred for their, for their sin, but 
I can at least uh, help them to identify that they are in fact sinners. They might reject that altogether when they get out of the house. I can also give them what to do with that and why we need Christ. I can't control what they do after that. I can't control what they do with it. I can't control whether they take that up. But I can at least help them see, yes, in fact, I have sinned. If they reject it, that's going to be their business. But, um, but ultimately, I can do that. And you can, I think you can do that with grown kids as they left the house, too. It becomes harder if you haven't done that when they grow up, I, I, I'm sure. But um, I think certainly you can. Other questions? Well, let's not leave it there. Let's read Psalm 51 before we close. This is David writing a psalm of confession uh, after he is confronted by Nathan the prophet. And he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach your transgress, teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, uh, guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess with David that we too are guilty, um, even of adultery. Your word tells us that to look upon another person with lust in our heart is to commit adultery with them. And we confess every one of us is guilty of that. We are guilty of sin in abundance, sin we know of in our heart and sin we don't even know that we've committed. And we confess that we have sinned against your word, whether in those ways or in other ways we've sinned. We know that this puts us in um, separation of a relationship with you. And we're grateful that Christ has paid um, the price for us on the cross, giving us forgiveness of sin. And so we cling only to the grace that you have given to us through Christ. 
without that, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And yet because of him, we are alive. And so we are grateful, eternally grateful for the work that you have done. Continue to curate in us hearts that are dissatisfied with sin and satisfied with righteousness. We pray that those things would actually make us happy and joyous. That they wouldn't make us bored, but that they would excite us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all. We'll see y'all next week.